Hey everyone, it's Manoush Zamarodi, the TED Radio Hour's new host, and new episodes with me are only one week away. So as we put the final touches on them, I want to share with you one of my favorite episodes from over the years. On the show today, we are looking at our addiction to consumption and constant growth, and what it would take to build a society where we regenerate and reuse what we already have. It's called Circular, and it originally aired in December 2018. Enjoy. This is the TED Radio Hour. Each week, groundbreaking TED Talks. TED Talks. Uh, TED. TED. Technology. Entertainment. Design. Design. Is that really what it stands for? I've never known that. Delivered it, at TED conferences around the it's world. The gift of the human imagination. We've had to believe in impossible things. The true nature of reality beckons from just beyond. Those talks, those ideas, adapted for radio. From NPR. Guy Raz. So we've all been told that if the economy is growing and if we keep producing and consuming, that's a good thing. We are at a moment when our economy is growing. This is good news for America and more evidence that our economy continues to surge ahead. So long as we pursue pro-growth policies that put faith in the American people, our economy will prosper and it will continue to be the marvel of the world. But what if we're wrong? What if growth isn't the answer to a better world. Moments ago, the numbers for America's economic growth or GDP were just released. The economy grew by 7.4%. It's just 1.2%. Grew 4.1%. We grew half a percent. Of 8.2% in the April to June quarter. Up 2.2. That's a one-tenth lower number than we were originally. Generally, how do we measure? Like, how do we know whether an an economy is doing well or not? Like, like how, how do most economists measure that? Well, that's an excellent question. And you know what? It never actually gets asked in an economics degree. I mean, wouldn't you think when students were studying economics that the first thing you'd ask is, well, what is an economy for and what does success look like? But that never actually comes up. It's just skipped right over. And so how you measure how well an economy is doing just becomes a deeply assumed turning towards GDP growth throughout my education and far too much throughout the education of students today. The assumption that, well, if this policy and that policy will lead to growth, job done. This is Kate Rayworth. I am a renegade economist. I'm passionate about rewriting economics so that it's actually fit for this century that we are in. Uh, Most if not all policymakers, economists, they all agree this is a good thing, that that growing an economy is good, it, it increases prosperity. I mean, it would almost be political suicide, right, for somebody to say, growth is a bad thing, let's stop it. But but in general, right, most of them agree that the consensus is that growth is good, it spreads prosperity. It is indeed. It is a deeply powerful narrative. It could almost be political suicide to question it. Of course, that's exactly what Bobby Kennedy did. 
uh, in the 1960s, and he made a very famous speech. Uh, his brother John ran for election in 1960 on the promise of a 5% growth rate. So it was the growth narrative was absolutely at its height as John F. Kennedy was elected. But then Bobby comes along some years later and he questions it. If we judge the United States of America by that, that growth national product counts air pollution and cigarette advertising. And he says, in essence, GDP measures everything except that which we fundamentally value, the laughter of our children, the prosperity of our own lives, the health of our communities. It measures neither our wit nor our courage. It's been questioned for many, many decades. And this questioning, I think, is just getting stronger and stronger, and it's time to replace it with something fit. It measures everything in short, except that which makes life worthwhile. Kate Rayworth picks up this idea from the TED stage. Global GDP is 10 times bigger than it was in 1950. And that increase has brought prosperity to billions of people. But the global economy has also become incredibly divisive, with the vast share of returns to wealth now accruing to a fraction of the global 1%. And the economy has become incredibly degenerative, rapidly destabilizing this delicately balanced planet. Our politicians know it, and so they offer new destinations for growth. I think it's time to choose a higher ambition, because humanity's 21st century challenge is clear. To meet the needs of all people within the means of this extraordinary, unique living planet, so that we and the rest of nature can thrive Progress on this goal isn't going to be measured with a metric of money. We need a dashboard of indicators. And when I sat down to try and draw a picture of what that might look like, strange though this is going to sound, it came out looking like a donut. But let me introduce you to the one donut that might actually turn out to be good for us. So imagine humanity's resource use radiating out from the middle. That hole in the middle is a place where people are falling short on life's essentials. They don't have the food, healthcare, education, political voice, housing that every person needs for a life of dignity and opportunity. We want to get everybody out of the hole, over the social foundation and into that green donut itself. But we cannot let our collective resource use overshoot that outer circle, the ecological ceiling, because there we put so much pressure on this extraordinary planet that we begin to kick it out of kilter. We cause climate breakdown. We acidify the oceans, a hole in the ozone layer, pushing ourselves beyond the planetary boundaries of the life-supporting systems that have for the last 11,000 years made Earth such a benevolent home to humanity. So this double-sided challenge to meet the needs of all within the means of the planet, it invites a new shape of progress. No longer this ever-rising line of growth, but a sweet spot for humanity, thriving in dynamic balance between the foundation and the ceiling. I'm not against an economy spending more money on the goods and services people need. The problem I have with the current obsession we have in our economies of growth is that we are structurally addicted to growth. We've structured the expectation of an ever-growing GDP into our financial system, into our political system, into our social lives. 
And so the design principles that politicians and economists should be looking at and reporting on and showing whether our economies are regenerative and distributive by design. And then whether or not GDP, goods and services sold, is going up or fluctuating or down a bit and then up or up a bit and then down. That's a secondary thought because what we want to get to is somewhere not just for more growth, but an economy that meets the needs of all within the means of the planet. So if our addiction to growth is the problem, is there a way to rethink how we live? From the clothes we wear, to the food we eat, to the materials we use to make everything around us. Could we reframe all of that to build a more circular system? Well, today on the show, we're going to explore that very idea and how most of the things we need today are already right in front of us. And for Kate Rayworth, this circular approach could be the key to a new kind of economy, an economy that would not only help our planet, but also imitate the way it works. So let's think about the structure and the design of, let's say, 20th century industry. I would call it linear Hmm. and degenerative. It's linear because think of a, a long pipe. We take Earth's materials, energy and materials, we stuff them in the pipe, we process them, make them into things we want, use it for a while, and then throw it away. So it's this take, make, use, lose, linear process. And it's degenerative because it's running down the living planet on which we depend. It's polluting the waters, creating hole in the ozone layer. It's deforesting the land, filling the atmosphere with excess, you know, waste carbon dioxide. So it's degenerative. We need to move away from that linear process to a circular one in which the waste from one process becomes food for the next. And if we want an example, nature is like jumping up and down with a hand in the air saying, look at me, look at me. (laughs) I'm the example you need. I've been circular for 3.8 billion years, please. And I'm thriving. You could learn a lot from me. There is no waste in nature. Everything decomposes and comes back as something else. So nature is the ultimate example of circular regenerative design. This, I mean, if we could create this kind of cyclical system, are there any hints of it happening anywhere around the world that we can start to look at and say, okay, that's that's a model for us? Yes, it's popping up all over in the way that most of the good things in life do. It's never going to be in one place, but I see it in individual industries or in particular countries. So in cars, there's a company called Open Motors who are making 100% electric, modular cars that actually you won't need to wear. Why would you want to wear a car? God, you just want to get somewhere. Mm, yeah. It'll be a self-driving car. It'll be mobility as a service. <laughs> uh, in countries, China actually is really taking circular economy seriously and looking across its own economy. Of, of It's popping up in different places there. In cities, so the city of Amsterdam, the city of London are saying, hey, we really want to take this seriously. So let's jump out of a single product in a single industry and let's look across it to a city scan and ask ourselves, what is all the material flow in this city and how can we loop materials round here instead of having them being shipped all over the world. And then at a industry level, there's a company like BioBean who will collect coffee grounds from cafes all over a city 
and turn them into what they call coffee logs. They can be used in fires as an energy source. So just like the best things in life, it's popping up all over because this is an idea that once people get the idea, then they look around at the industry they're in, the city they're in, the country they're in, the community they're part of and say, and what would it mean to start closing the loops here? Yeah, I, I mean, you, you describe yourself as a renegade economist. Um, do, do you ever feel like you're fighting a, a lone battle? Oh, I don't feel alone at all. Hmm. And the ideas I'm talking about, of course, I have have been around for many decades. Sure. And just as with the renewable energy sector, right, it's been around for decades. And there were some funny tinkerers who put solar panels on their house roof in the 70s. And people thought they were quirky. And people just persist and persist and keep going until the scale begins to build, the technology improves. And you know what, one day it just makes sense, even in your pocket, it makes sense to do this instead of buying gas and coal and oil. And I believe this transition is going to do the same thing. I just want to jump away from the old economic thinking that rules so much of the world. And how do we leap into today's understanding with the science that we recognize now about our dependence on our planetary home that we are rapidly pushing out of balance? How do we quickly bring that into economics? But I profoundly believe that 21st century economics of regenerative and distributive design, it's going to be practiced first and theorized later. So if I want to convince you, I'm not going to spew out a theory. I'm going to show you examples and take you to places where it's popping up and we see it on the ground. We see that it's working. We see that it makes sense with the planet. It makes sense with the community. And one day the textbooks will catch up and start telling the story. That's economist Kate Rayworth. Her book is called Donut Economics, Seven Ways to Think Like a 21st Century Economist. You can see Kate's full talk at TED.com. On the show today, ideas about building a circular world. I'm Guy Raz, and you're listening to the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Hey, everyone, just a quick thanks to two of our sponsors who help make this podcast possible. First, to Indeed. When it comes to hiring, you need help getting to your shortlist of qualified candidates fast. With Indeed.com, you can post a job in minutes, set up screener questions, then zero in on qualified candidates using an intuitive online dashboard. And when you need to hire fast, accelerate your results with sponsored jobs. New users can try for free at Indeed.com slash TRH. Terms, conditions, and quality standards apply. Offer valid through March 31st, 2020. On a secret military recording, a sound so haunting, one scientist believed it could change the world. My mind was racing as I listened to this, and I thought, this, this is the way. Join NPR's Invisibilia for the first episode of our new season. It's the TED Radio Hour from NPR. I'm Guy Raz. And on the show today, ideas about living in a circular world. Food at the moment is the single biggest damage that humans do to nature. This is Tristram Stewart. He's an environmental activist. And Tristram, he wants us to rethink our entire approach to food. It is the single biggest source of carbon dioxide emissions. It is by far the biggest user of fresh water. It is by far the biggest cause of species extinction and habitat loss. The soy and the maize that is being grown 
has firstly a huge negative environmental impact. We are chopping down the Amazon rainforest right now to grow soy to feed to our livestock. That is a monumental and irrevocable disaster for planet Earth. Every year, we throw out roughly 1.3 billion tons of food around the world. That's about a third of what we grow. And Tristram, he wants to change that. Here's more from Tristram on the TED stage. Yesterday, I went to um, one of the local supermarkets that I often visit to uh, inspect, if you like, what they're throwing away. I found quite a few packets of biscuits amongst all the fruit and vegetables and everything else that was in there. And I thought, well, this could serve as a symbol for today. So I want you to imagine that these nine biscuits that I found in the bin represent the global food supply, okay? We start out with nine. That's what's in fields around the world every single year. The first biscuit we're going to lose before we even leave the farm. That's a problem primarily associated with developing world agriculture, where there is a lack of infrastructure, refrigeration, pasteurization, grain stores, even basic fruit crates, which means that foods goes to waste before it even leaves the fields. The next three biscuits are the foods that we decide to feed to livestock, the maize, the wheat, and the soya. Unfortunately, our beasts are inefficient uh, animals, and they turn two-thirds of that into feces and heat. So we've lost those two, and we've only kept this one in meat and dairy products. Two more we're going to throw away directly into bins. This is what most of us think of when we think of food waste, what ends up in the garbage, what ends up in supermarket bins, what ends up in restaurant bins. We've lost another two, and we've left ourselves with just four biscuits to feed on. That is not a superlatively efficient use of global resources, especially when you think of the billion hungry people that exist already in the world. I mean, this is, it sounds like there's, a, there's several pieces of the, of the puzzle to, that need to be fixed, right, to resolve this. But it, it sounds like a big piece of this puzzle is that if we could just use food waste more efficiently, we wouldn't have to grow so much more food. That's right. We don't have to grow way more food, particularly not in, in rich countries. Uh, at the moment, we put our food scraps into the garbage yeah. and a garbage collector comes and takes it along with all the other trash and drives it to a landfill site where it is buried. It decomposes anaerobically in the absence of oxygen because it's underground and produces methane, which contributes even more to global warming. Yeah. Instead of treating it as a massive economic burden with no value whatsoever, it's just a cost to the economy, that food scraps, just like if you were producing food on a farm or in a restaurant, those food scraps are a resource. They're a valuable resource. And if we collected that food waste, took it to a plant and cooked it, and then sent it out to farms, that's a business. That is an economically hugely valuable business. So just to clarify, you're talking about recycling our food waste and, and turning it into animal feed. That's absolutely right. The function of pigs and chickens could be to upcycle the byproducts and the waste from the human food supply chain. Huh. They're perfectly kind of designed to eat our leftovers and upcycle that waste back into food for us, eggs, meat, and also manure, which can go back on the land and feed the, the crops and the vegetables. And uh, if you think about what happened during the Second World War, and indeed in the first, 
where there was a real pinch on food supplies for the Allies, it became illegal to grow crops and feed them to livestock. You could only feed them scraps. Hmm. And the systems put in place at that time for collecting every shred of food on every street corner that went to the pigs that then fed the population and fed the armies. Now, that was a resource efficiency drive at the time of war, right? It was an existential threat. Guess what? We have a new existential threat. It is called environmental catastrophe. Yeah, I mean, could it be possible? I mean, could you actually create a system where pigs and chickens are fed food that humans don't eat? I mean, could you do that in an efficient way that wouldn't require, you know, all these soy and corn crops to be grown just to feed these animals? The short answer is yes, absolutely. And not only can you, but those systems already exist. If you go to Hmm. parts of the world like Japan, South Korea, where governments have cottoned on to the fact that there is a massive resource crisis, and they have their own local issues of having to import, of course, um, food from other parts of the world, there are government incentives and government guidelines on maximizing the amount of food scraps from the food system that go into uh, industrial processing plants that cook the food scraps so they're completely safe, totally sterile, and get them out to pig farms and turn back into what is branded as eco-pork and ends up on the same shop shelves as the food waste wow. that fed them came from. Um, wow. So those systems exist. They're industrial. They're scaled. They're, you know, that, that, that's, that's normal, in fact, historically and geographically. And that is you know, practiced all over the USA in small bits and bobs. But, you know, it, it, there's no reason at all why it shouldn't be um, centralized. Some food waste, as I said at the beginning, will inevitably arise. So the question is, what is the best thing to do with it? In fact, humans answered that question 6,000 years ago. We domesticated pigs to turn food waste back into food. If you cook food for pigs, just as if you cook food for humans, it is rendered safe. If we did that and fed it to pigs, we would save that amount of carbon. If we feed our food waste, which is the current sort of government favorite way of getting rid of food waste, to anaerobic digestion, which turns food waste into gas to produce electricity, you save a paltry 448 kilograms of carbon dioxide per ton of food waste. It's much better to feed it to pigs. I mean, it sounds like to solve this problem would require an enormous systemic series of policy changes. Like governments have to harness their power to make this happen. But but that also makes me feel helpless, you know, to, to wait for for politicians to solve this problem. And and it and I wonder whether it also requires just behavioral changes among ordinary people to just decide that they are going to try and make a contribution. Is that even possible? It's not just possible. We're already doing that. We haven't got anything like as far as we need to, and we need to speed this up way, way, way faster than is currently the case. But if you look at food waste reduction, in the UK, we achieved a 21% reduction in food waste in households. Yeah. And I believe there is a way of tipping socially into a system that completely changes the dominant paradigm in our society and shifts away from pure financial maximization to something much more wholesome. That is not impossible. 
Financial maximization is a recent construct. It didn't used to be the heart of our society, and it sure as hell can't be in the future. That's Tristram Stewart. He's an environmental activist and founder of the nonprofit craft beer maker Toast Ale. You can see Tristram's full talk at TED.com. So when it comes to the natural world, one of the most circular organisms are oysters. Yes. For starters, they clean water. Yes, so oysters can help filter out excess nitrogen. They're healthy and delicious and plentiful. And it is this incredible source of protein. And you can throw oyster shells back into the water where they will help to grow more oysters. Yes, oysters grow on other oyster shells and form these incredibly protective reefs, which form habitats for fish. Uh, So I guess it's safe to say, Kate, that you like oysters. (laughs) I not only like to consume oysters out of certified waters, but I, at some point back in 2009, 2010, began exploring oysters as a unit of living infrastructure. This is Kate Orff. She's a landscape architect in New York City. Yeah, I mean, I am a landscape architect, so I think people immediately assume that means like land and gardens for rich people or all the connotations that that comes with it. But that's not exactly what Kate's interested in. She's more focused on reviving ecosystems. You know, the swamps at the edge of town, the the wetlands, the shoals, the shallows, um, the, the baylands. Like the ones around New York City. And more than a century ago, New York's waterways were healthy and thriving and full of oysters. Yeah, so there were oysters as big as dinner plates in the Gowanus Canal, if you can imagine that. And around the sort of area where Fulton Street is now, there used to be these oyster boats that would kind of like back up to the edge of the shoreline and just open their their backs. And then you'd like run on and buy oysters or shovel them off. And they were available just regularly on the street, like hot dog carts are ubiquitous today. Um, kind of helped the early New York civilization, if you will, kind of begin to thrive. So what happened? Yeah, there was a combination of factors, but literally, you know, once oyster production and cultivation just became super industrialized, we literally just overfished and over-extracted all of our oysters. So I would say that combined with emptying sewage into our bays and um, just industrial waste products contributed to pretty much a all-out collapse of oysters in, in our kind of water bodies. And with that collapse, the thriving ecosystem, the aquatic and marine life, just disappeared. I mean, there is a kind of a point at which the physical landscape just breaks down. So Kate's been focused on using oysters to try and help restore New York's waterways. Kate Orff picks up her story from the TED stage. So now I want to introduce you to my new hero, and that is the eastern oyster. So albeit a very small creature and very modest, this creature is incredible because it can grow, you can grow it, and and it accepts algae and detritus in one end, and then through this kind of beautiful, glamorous set of stomach organs, out the other end comes cleaner water. And one oyster can filter up to 50 gallons of water a day. Oysters can attenuate and agglomerate onto each other and form these amazing natural reef structures. They really become nature's wave attenuators. 
and they become the sort of bedrock of any harbor ecosystem. Many, many species depend on them. I mean, it's amazing. One tiny oyster can filter dozens of gallons of water a day. Yes, yes. And so what does that mean? Is the, is, the, is the oyster bed literally cleaning the water that it lives in? Well, yeah. So oysters are filter feeders. You just imagine an oyster is like a giant stomach <laughs> <laughs> that it's sort of pulling water through its shell and filtering it out and pushing out that waste product. I think it's important to know that, you know, oysters can't filter everything. They cannot filter out, you know, the kind of toxic legacy of, you know, industrial America. But what they can do is filter out a lot of excess nitrogen in our water bodies. And nitrogen is basically a kind of silent killer, if you will. Yeah. I mean, I know that, that nitrogen comes from, from sewage and, and agricultural runoff. But what is it? what does it actually do when it when it goes into the water? So literally, it pulls the oxygen out of the water. It creates essentially kind of a toxic environment. So tragically, you have these water bodies that are kind of totally overloaded with nitrogen. You have mass fish die off or you have mass turtle die off. And, you know, oysters are a step in trying to reverse that, um, that, that contamination because they do have such incredible, you know, potential to hit the reset button and to bring back fish. And, and right now in New York, this is happening, right? Like you are working on a project to revitalize some of these oyster beds around Staten Island. Yes. So the work of the project, which is called Living Breakwaters, it's a rocky breakwater structure that's going to be seeded with oysters. Hmm. And so it will always have that kind of risk-reducing capacity. But over time, as the oysters grow, it's going to become this incredible new habitat for fish. And that's we, we learned that Fish, particularly in this urban area in the New York Harbor, have like no space for juvenile fish to keep from being eaten by the big fish. So we have this kind of segment of the breakwater itself that we're calling kind of like public space for fish. So is it fair to say it's almost like building a like a coral reef for other sea life? Yes, in a way. I mean, a coral reef in tropical or in different environment um, is performing a similar set of ecosystem surfaces. You know, we were talking earlier about, you know, what was New York like in 1850. You have to imagine these reefs sort of um, visible from the surface of the water, right? Oh, wow. You could see them popping out? Right. They would be popping out of the water. And if you were to be a scuba diver and go underneath the water, rather than flat, muddy bottom that has been where these reefs were erased previously, you would see this incredibly three-dimensional mosaic of spaces. You would see juvenile bass fish darting in and out of these reef streets, lobsters and crabs uh, scooting along. Um, You might even see seals hauling out on the surface of the breakwater itself, just teeming with aquatic life. It'll probably take uh, 10 years, 20 years. But the whole point of the project is that it is not, you know, something that is ever finished. It is is trying to set into motion a regenerative cycle. I mean, systems in nature tend to be self-regenerating. Like they they tend to be circular and cyclical and, and they kind of sort things out on their own. But it sounds like what you're doing is you're kind of bringing humans into this cycle into the self-regenerating cycle as well. Yes. I mean, I feel like every square inch of the planet has been impacted by human decisions and human behavior. So moving forward, 
I think we need to kind of think about landscapes differently. And so there's not this kind of notion of like, well, nature will just come back, you know, by itself. We have altered the chemistry of our water. We have clear-cut forests. We have dammed our rivers and so on. So it's not like we can just stop now and just think that nature's going to regenerate and go back into some virtuous cycle. We have to really actively unmake some of the decisions that we've made in the past and like literally give these ecosystems a boost um, and design our way into them being able to get back into this regenerative cycle. So if in in 50 years, um, you could imagine living by the shore in Staten Island, and there might be a local economy built around oyster farming, Oyster farming and, you know, whale watching and fishing and kayaking and, you know, a whole new recreational economy built around this much more robust ecosystem. And swimming in that water, maybe. <laughs> yes. <laughs> we researched these beautiful old photos of the south shore of Staten Island and where you have, you know, bathing parties, women in like full dresses and, you know, hats. And these landscapes were destinations for for New Yorkers. So I think a a vision moving forward would be that these regional landscapes of salt marshes and wetlands and reefs would be something that we bring back and, and feel like, you know, that this nature and the city are not two things that are at odds with each other, that, that nature is actually being fostered and stewarded by our next century urbanites. That's Kate Orff. She's the author of the book Toward an Urban Ecology. You can check out her full talk at TED.com. On the show today, ideas about building a circular world. Stay with us. I'm Guy Raz, and you're listening to the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Support for this podcast and the following message come from the American Jewish World Service, working together for more than 30 years to build a more just and equitable world. Learn more at AJWS.org. Why is it so hard to make new habits? Are pets really that great for us? Why can't I remember where I put my keys? Would you rather be given an award or a bonus? Answers to these questions and more every week on Hidden Brain from NPR. It's the TED Radio Hour from NPR. I'm Guy Raz. And on the show today, ideas about building a more circular world. How does most plastic end up in the ocean? Like, how does it get there? Well, my experiences traveling around the world continue to exhibit that in those areas with extreme poverty, those communities, those governments that may not even have food for their population certainly have no consideration of garbage collection or recycling. This is David Katz. He's an environmentalist and entrepreneur. And what occurs is that the population has to do something with it. Now, they either put it into big piles and they burn it, or they throw it into the canal, or into the streets, or the riverbed. Mm. Typically around the world, there are two seasons. There's the great collection and then the perch. The dry season when the riverbed is filled. And then in a monsoon or in the rainy season, it all flows out. It all flows out. And a lot of it ends up in the ocean. Eight million metric tons of plastic every year. And yeah, it rips and tears and gets smaller. But unlike organic trash, plastic 
doesn't go away. It's being called the Great Pacific Garbage Patch. The Great Pacific Garbage Patch. It's twice as big as Texas. It's made up of an estimated 1.8 trillion pieces of trash. Trash is kind of sucked in and it doesn't get out. And most of it is plastic. So you might think David Katz is on some kind of mission to clean the ocean. But actually, his goal is to create a circular system, a system that stops the plastic from reaching the ocean in the first place. David explains his idea from the TED stage. If you were to walk into a kitchen, sink overflowing, water spilling all over the floor, soaking into the walls, you had to think fast. You're going to panic. You've got a bucket, a mop, or a plunger. What do you do first? Why don't we turn off the tap? It would be pointless to mop or plunge or scoop up the water if we don't turn off the tap first. Why aren't we doing the same for the ocean? Even if the ocean cleanup project, beach plastic recycling programs, or any well-meaning ocean plastic company was 100% successful, it would still be too little too late. We're trending to produce over 300 million ton of plastic this year. Reportedly, 80% of ocean plastic is coming from those countries that have extreme poverty. And that is exactly why I created the Plastic Bank. Describe what what the Plastic Bank is. What what does it do? We're the world's largest chain of stores for the ultra-ultra-poor, where everything can be purchased using plastic garbage by weight. And... When I say everything, I mean those things that are the most important, like school tuition or access to medical care, sustainable cooking fuel, Wi-Fi, cell phone minutes. Everything that the world's poor need and quite often can't afford, available now using plastic garbage. So with the the plastic bank, you, you I guess you saw a way to kill two birds with one stone, right? You stop more plastic from getting into the ocean and then helping people in need at the same time. Correct. So how many countries do you operate in right now? Well, we're in Haiti, we're Brazil, the Philippines, and now Indonesia. So in any of those countries uh, where people have access to the store, they can go in with like old plastic stuff and just it gets weighed and they get paid an amount of money and that plastic then is is recycled and... and Correct. Wow. It's simple. And they get cash? And they get cash. And we transfer it into a digital wallet. Mm-hmm. And there's a blockchain banking application as well so that we can remove the middlemen and the corruption so we can ensure that the greatest reward is provided for the massive material. Our chain of stores in Haiti are more like community centers where one of our collectors, Lisa Nassis, has the opportunity to earn a living by collecting material from door to door, from the streets, from business to business. And at the end of her day, she gets to bring the material back to us where we weigh it, we check it for quality, and we transfer the value into her account. Lisa now has a reliable source of income. And that value we transfer into an online account for her. And because it's a savings account, it becomes an asset that she can borrow against. And because it's online, she has security against robbery. And I think more importantly, she has a new sense of worth. And even the plastic has a new sense of value. So when people bring their plastic into a store and then it's sorted, and then is it shipped off like that, or is it processed into into material in the countries and then shipped off? When we receive the material, we'll talk about Lisa Nassis, 
When she's out during the day collecting material while our girls are in school, she brings it back to us. When it comes into one of our centers, it's weighed, and then she separates it. And she puts the high-density polyethylene where that goes, or the low-density where that goes, or the, or the PET where that goes, and it's separated by, by color as well. And then she takes off all the labels and then the caps and the rings, if the bottles have those. And then we transport that to a facility that will crush it. They'll actually put it into a compactor and bale the same type of material, the same color of material together. And that bale can then go onto a shipping container. And then we ship that to our customers' bottling facilities, where they then turn it into a pellet, and then that gets turned into a bottle. And just to be clear, the people who, t- who take your plastic pellets and then turn it into bottles, I mean, a lot of these are, are companies that make cleaning products, like companies who, who actually may have created some of the plastic in the first place. Yeah, the, yeah, like Henkel and Essie Johnson and those, right. Yeah. And they are paying a little bit extra for the material that then goes back into their bottling. Shampoo, household cleaners, and then that bottle, we would hope, is recycled again in the communities that their customers bought that product. And that model is completely replicatable. In Sao Paulo, a church sermon encourages parishioners to not just bring offering on Sunday, but the recycling too. We then match the church with the poor. Or like in Vancouver, any individual can now return their deposit refundable recyclables. And instead of taking back the cash, they have the opportunity to deposit that value into the account of the poor around the world. So you look at this and you say, all right, we need to go to the source of this. We need to take Mm -hmm. the plastic before it even hits the ocean and then just collect it. And then we can recycle this into material that can be used in other recyclable products. The beauty as it unfolds for us is that we create a new paradigm around the material. We are much more like a bank than a store. Hmm. Now, we, we are an opportunity, like our newest center is on the island of Bali, where our bank branch engages the population to bring us their household material before they go grocery shopping. And then they have the opportunity to buy more rice, buy more oil, buy more other things. I mean, it's sort of clear that what you're, what you're trying to do here is to create a circular economy. What we do can't be considered anything but circular. We take a material value, exhibit the value of it, allow people to benefit from that value. It goes back into packaging. It comes back into society. The value is revealed again. It's collected, put back into packaging, and on and on. And I think importantly as well, when we equate it to like a dollar bill, Hmm. if you've got a dollar bill or a five dollar bill, you go to the store, you pay for something with the five dollars, the five dollars is not destroyed. It's circulated. Sure. It continues to circulate. And that's what we do, but with plastic. You like create a commodity out of plastic. We've created a currency out of plastic. That's what we've done. Hmm. So it is never thrown away. David Katz, founder and CEO of Plastic Bank. To hear his full talk, go to TED.com. On the show today, ideas about growth and consumption and how we can rethink both to create a more circular system, even when it comes to what we're wearing. Can you can you describe your style? Like, uh, like what, what might you wear on a typical day? Well, I don't like to go out the door unless I can 
look in the mirror and it makes me chuckle just a little bit. This is Jessie Arrington. She's a graphic designer. So, you know, something unexpected like pattern clashing is one thing I like to do. So maybe I'll put a stripe with a plaid or, uh, you know, a floral with a polka dot or something like that. That's always fun. And then I think that color has a big impact on not only uh, how you're feeling, but how people respond to you. So, like, as a way to stand out, it's just really fun to wear really bright colors. I hope that my epitaph one day is, she was not afraid of color. (laughs) So tell me about your, your clothes shopping habits. Like, where do you get your stuff? Well, you know, I like to go to a lot of thrift stores, secondhand stores, or clothing resale shops. Those are really the primary places where I find things. So you're not going to, like, fast fashion stores? No, I mean, I haven't set foot in one of those in a very long time. And uh, really, I'd say about 90% of my wardrobe uh, is strictly, you know, in some form or fashion, secondhand, has been worn by somebody else or owned by somebody else before it came to my closet. And Jessie took this idea to the extreme when she went to a week-long TED conference and packed nothing in her suitcase except for seven pairs of underwear. Jessie Arrington picks up her story from the TED stage. Exactly one week's worth of undies is all I put in my suitcase. I was betting that I'd be able to find everything else I could possibly want to wear once I got here to Palm Springs. And since you don't know me as the woman walking around Ted in her underwear, (laughs) that means I found a few things, and I'd really love to show you my week's worth of outfits right now. Does that sound good? As I do this, I'm just going to I'm also going to tell you a few of the life lessons that believe it or not, I have picked up in these adventures wearing nothing new. So let's start with Sunday. I call this shiny tiger. You do not um, Can you have describe of some of the great. outfits that you wore? So so Yeah. Uh, let's start with shiny tiger. This is on <laughs> Sunday. Do you remember what that looked like? Yeah, I think it was like a gold sequin skirt and there was just like this tiger print blouse. If you can pull off tiger stripes with a gold sequin and then like a red, a pop of red, I don't know, it's just fun. Monday, color is powerful. It is almost physiologically impossible to be in a bad mood when you're wearing bright red pants. I'm wearing red pants, some cowboy boots over the top of the red pants, and this smock-like thing that I found in the thrift store. I love when you can find something that's been hand-sewn. Tuesday, fitting in is way overrated. I, spent I think maybe it was like a big swing tent dress that I found. Um, and again, that was one of those pieces that somebody created something really special. I think it was four different kinds of fabric all patchwork together in this big swing tent dress. And then wow. I wore sort of like a red sash as a bandana kind of thing on my head. And... Um, that was the one when I went back and watched the talk recently. I was like, oh, I wish I still had that one. That is special. I hope somebody good has that one. All right. So after the after Ted ended that week, 
Mm-hmm. What'd you do? You, you gathered up your clothes and mm-hmm. what'd you do with them? Well, actually, I'll tell you a secret. I gathered up my clothes and I went on a road trip to Austin for South by Southwest. So oh. I actually did get a couple more wares out of everything. But before I left Austin and flew back to New York, everything got donated to a thrift store there. Um, so maybe I helped migrate a few pieces from the Palm Spring Desert to the Austin thrift shops. Yeah, was it before before this interview, I was just kind of reading a little bit about the fashion industry and clothing. And I, I kind of knew this, but didn't realize this. But um, clothes manufacturing, like textile dyeing, mm-hmm. is the second biggest polluter of clean water in the world. This is after agriculture. And apparently a lot of this has to do with just the mass proliferation of fast fashion, like super cheap clothing. Like you can just go into one of these, we know the stores, and just mm-hmm. buy something really cheap, wear it once or twice, and then just throw it away. And that's And lots of people do this. Well, and, and we're trained to do this. Uh, it's almost been told to us that it's our patriotic duty. I remember living in New York after 9-11. It was like, go downtown and shop. Go shop. Go yeah. shop. And um, yeah, okay, I guess I can see that. But I think we need to rethink, you know, not just our consumerism, but our economies in general. And, and how can we base them less on consumption, 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 and at all costs and without being thoughtful. Well, we were talking with David Katz about, you know, the similar problem with plastic, which isn't necessarily cleaning up plastic waste, which is a huge problem, right? But it's that we're just making so much of it every day without realizing that we don't actually need to make so much because there's so much that we can just recycle. And that seems to be the problem with clothing, that it's made so quickly now and the supply chains and the production um, systems are so efficient and Mm -hmm. the cost of labor is so low because of how they're manufactured, people in certainly in developed world can just buy lots of clothes. Uh, Apparently, people now buy 60% more clothing than they did in the year 2000. Well, we have so much invested in it. Think about how, you know, we've been told that how we look is who we are. And I, I we're constantly having to, uh, you know, stay in line with trends and things like that. Another thing that's great about reusing clothing is that you get to play with those trends and you get to mix them up. And, you know, there's nothing new under the sun. If it's a trend right now, it has happened at some point (laughs) since the Industrial Revolution. And you can probably find it out there in a way that it already existed, a way that's more original, a way that tells a bigger, deeper story than buying it off a rack with 50 others. Yeah. You know, I I found myself for the last, I don't know, 25 years just wearing a sweatshirt and like a a headband and uh, (laughs) sweatpants. And now all of a sudden, it's a cool thing. All I need is like some neon sunglasses and, Uh and... I just blend right in, and you know. <laughs> you look like one of the really trendy kids now. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I think a lot of style comes from within. It doesn't have to be new, and it doesn't have to be expensive, and it doesn't have to have damaged the planet or hurt somebody. You know, this fast fashion movement is so new that we're still, I think it's 2011 that it really hit its height, and we're still dealing with what that means, and I think the public is still becoming educated about that. And I have seen pushback from people, um, from consumers wanting to be more conscious. I think that maybe not everybody, what what if just 50% did it? What if 50% of us said, we're just going to, uh, you know, work with what's already here, you know? In some ways, maybe the planet and scarcity will will force us to that perspective. 
That's Jessie Arrington. She's a graphic designer. You can see her full talk at TED.com. Hey, thanks for listening to our show on building a circular world this week. If you want to find out more about who is on it, go to ted.npr.org. And to see hundreds more TED Talks, check out ted.com or the TED app. Our production staff at NPR includes Jeff Rogers, Sanaz Meshkanpour, Janae West, Eva Grant, Casey Herman, Rachel Faulkner, Deba Motasham, and James Delahousey, with help from Daniel Shukin. Our intern is Dareth Gales. Our partners at TED are Chris Anderson, Colin Helms, Anna Phelan, and Janet Lee. I'm Guy Raz, and you've been listening to Ideas Worth Spreading right here on the TED Radio Hour from NPR.